My generation, Janet, their identity was what their husband did. I'm Mrs. So-and-so and my husband is. And as far as going out to work, hey, making a position for themselves, it was foreign and it wasn't acceptable. So now they are retired, they're in their late 80s and 90s, and they want activities that either stimulate them intellectually or they want to be entertained. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Several years ago, Dr. Myra Levick and Dr. Maxine Young began exchanging letters and sharing stories about their individual living situations. Now 80 years old, Dr. Young is divorced and lives alone with her dog in rural Washington State. Dr. Levick is a 93-year-old widow who currently lives in an independent living community in South Florida. What began as an email dialogue between these longtime friends and colleagues turned into a book titled Dear Myra, Dear Max, A Conversation About Aging. It's a poignant and at times sobering message written by members of a generation living into their 90s with little information to help guide them along the way. What can we learn from these social pioneers who are aging in a society where people are living longer than ever? We're going to talk about that today with half of the writing team of Dear Myra, Dear Max. Myra Levick has a BFA in painting, a master's in education, and a PhD in psychology. She helped found the American Art Therapy Association. She developed the first graduate curriculum in the country in art therapy, and she developed the widely used Levick Emotional and Cognitive Art Therapy Assessment, a school-based tool to evaluate the therapeutic needs of special needs children in the Miami-Dade County Public Schools. Dr. Myra Levick is a painter, an art psychotherapist, and the director of the South Florida Art Psychotherapy Institute. She joins us from Deerfield Beach, Florida. Myra Levick, welcome to the HWISE podcast. Thank you. Before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about your personal background. Are you a Florida native? No, I'm not. I was born and raised in Philadelphia and married my teenage sweetheart. Uh, when he was 22 and I was 19. And we made a deal because I had the scholarship in painting and he was going into medical school. And so the deal we made was that I would give up my scholarship and work while he was in medical school. And uh, when we could afford it, I would go back to college, which happened. 17 years later, three daughters later, I went back to Moore College of Art for BFA in painting. 1942, I graduated high school. 1942, he graduated undergraduate, pre-med, mm-hmm. and he went off to medical school. We decided we wanted to be married the following year. Those days, you didn't live with anybody, and you had to be very careful. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to be together, and so we planned to be married the following year. But somebody needed to bring in money. So I decided I would do it then, and he would do it later. 
My research shows that you graduated from Moore College of Art in Philadelphia in 1963. That's when you graduated. That's correct. What was it like to pursue a career in the madman era? You were an early feminist, and you wrote that your career took many paths. Yes, it did. You know, I had three daughters at the time I graduated, and uh, I had no visions of myself going into an attic studio and painting because I had a family. And even though I was a fairly good painter, I applied for a master's degree in history of art in Bryn Mawr College. Got it. My husband was delighted. And then I saw a little ad on the graduate billboard just before graduation. And it said a psychiatrist was looking for an artist to work in the first open unit mental health patients in Philadelphia. Happened to be my husband's hospital. Uh-huh. And I must tell you that I didn't tell him I was going for the interview. Oh, really? And, uh, <laughs> no, because I, I thought he'd think I was crazy. I got the job, and he did think I was crazy and was very upset. But I loved it, and he loved it after a while. He was just so anxious about my working in the mental health unit and giving up my opportunity to graduate from Bryn Mawr. So I started in this serendipitous opportunity mm-hmm. and uh, was trained by the psychoanalytic milieu in Philadelphia, the Albert Einstein Hospital North, mm-hmm. and uh, it was just incredible. We had a 29-bed inpatient unit. I was the art therapist for which there was no title and no heading at the time, mm-hmm. and um, it was just amazing because the people I worked with, the people that trained me, were most extraordinary. And um, Len was very, very, he would check, he would make his rounds in that hospital and come down and make sure I was okay because we left everything out, scissors out, all sorts of appliances and little tools out, and he would worry about me. He was then an internist and on the staff at the same hospital, but after a while he just loved coming down to watch what was going on. Mm-hmm. Len was your husband. Yes, Len was my husband. For people who don't really know, I think art therapy is very nebulous for a lot of people. Can you explain what you were doing there? Sure. Sure. What art therapy is, is we are using imagery instead of words as a communication between patient and therapist. It has nothing to do with the ability to draw. For example, if a patient comes into me and says they had a terrible day the day before, had a fight with their husband or the fight with children, I would ask them if they could draw something about it symbolically, something that to them represents that experience. And then we would talk about it. And the role of the art therapist like the role of the analyst and the psychiatrist, is to facilitate Mm -hmm. the patient's awareness of what is going on, not to say, aha, this is what I see. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very, very specific, carefully orchestrated process. And it was amazing. It took me several years to really feel comfortable. Uh, I began writing about it with the two doctors who were really my superiors Mm -hmm. and uh, my supervisors. And to me, it was just an amazing process to think that using an imagery or an image of something even as abstract or poorly drawn as it might be could reveal so much and help the patient understand what's 
going on internally and externally. Yeah, it's fascinating. I understand you had the opportunity to spend some time with Dr. Anna Freud. Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, that was much later, Jana. It was actually after five years at Albert Einstein, Dr. Goldman, who was our director, was invited to go to uh, Hahnemann Medical College and Hospital, and we were all heartbroken, but he was just just as a young, brilliant man, decided to take the job, and within a couple of months, showed up at our apartment for breakfast and announced I was going with him, Mm. and the head nurse was going with him. And that I was going to start an art therapy program there. And so that's what I did. That was 1967, just the beginning of 67, 66, really. And I, I incidentally, you also correct when you review that uh, I, I graduated in 62, not 63, but I was at, Hahnem, at Einstein. And then I went to Hahnemann in the end of 66. Okay. And uh, we started the first program. Dr. Goldman decided to hold a meeting. He thought we should really have uh, an art therapy association. There we learned there were about 100 artists Mm -hmm. working in mental health centers throughout the country. Hmm. And he and Dr. Paul Fink invited them to come to Hahnemann, and we appointed a uh, ad hoc committee and decided they would have one year to develop the, the idea for an organization that would be national. And I was one of the five that was elected. In one year, the American Art Therapy Foundation Association was founded. But you asked me about Anna Freud, and I must tell you that while I was at Einstein, they sent me to Temple University, and we had an incredible tragedy. Uh, Dr. Goldman, who was 39 years old, died in the middle of the night of a coronary. It was really an overwhelming a horrible experience for all of us. He was really adored and a brilliant young man. What happened was a sort of a tragic comedy, and I have written about this in a career memoir. He was listed as the director of the program because I was only uh, an adjunct professor mm-hmm. and also still had the title of activities therapist and art therapist. And what happened was pretty wild. The dean of the graduate school, once we recovered from his death, called a meeting and said, who is going to be director of this program? Because only an assistant professor could be the director. Mm -hmm. And he went around the room and asked the psychology director, the child psychiatry director, and chairperson of those committees. And it turned out everybody kept saying, well, Myra's the only one that knows anything about it, and she's the only one that read the curriculum. And the dean of the graduate school turned to the chairman of my department of psychiatry and said, well, looks like you're going to have to appoint the first lady assistant professor in charge of a program. You were moving in a male-dominated milieu. It was a totally male-dominated community. And it's interesting that when we we were in a hotel temporarily, we moved into the new medical school. And the first thing they did was set up the coffee pot in my office and tell me, you know, they'd be very pleased to have me make the coffee every morning. So after two weeks, I thought I'd be very pleased if they did it if I wasn't around because that was really not my job. Good for you. So we, we learned. I learned my husband was absolutely hilarious and amazing. He kept telling me, Myra, hold your own. Mm. Don't let these old professors get to you. Mm. And it was very, very interesting. I mean, that could be a little book all by itself. But now you asked about Anna Freud, Jana. Mm. I'll tell you. I had my master's. I had 
my undergraduate degree. I have helped found the American Art Therapy Association. I started the first graduate program in the country, and I had an idea to write a book and illustrate Anna Freud's Ego and Mechanisms of Defense series and child development theories. We had collected drawings over the years from my patients, students' patients that I supervised, and we had a new chairman, Dr. Israel Swirling, who came to us from Bronx State, and he thought that was a fabulous idea. And he had also appointed me the first tenured professor in the Department of Psychiatry. And when I told him about my idea for the book and I wanted him to ask Ms. Freud, who he knew, permission to do it, he said he would do it on one condition. If I went back for my PhD and also thought that um, it would be just great if I went for not only for my PhD, but he would get me permission and he would arrange for me to work with Miss Freud. Oh, gosh. So that's how that came about. I thought he was insane. I was 58 years old, 56 years old, and I said, this is preposterous. Went home and told my husband, is his lost his mind, and he said, great idea. <laughs> oh, I said, I will apply to Union, which was a school with open borders and open walls so that you could really plan your curriculum. I said, okay, you insist this is what I'll do, and they said, no, you'll apply to Bryn Mawr. And I said, but that's pretty insane because I have a bachelor's in fine arts only a master's in psychology, and they said apply. So, like a good little girl, a 50-some, I went down and applied. I remember I took the train because it was in the suburbs Mm -hmm. and told the chairman of the department that I was there by force, that I didn't want to go, but I wanted to finish this book. Mm -hmm. And she said, sounds like a great dissertation to me. And she suggested, am I also including cognitive development, not just the emotional development. And could I do that? Uh And I said, sure. I said, I've been working on both. She said, fine, give me the application tomorrow morning and you're in. Admissions closed tomorrow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow is right. (laughs) I have to tell you, I I didn't know if I was happy or if I was sick to my stomach. The thought of going back to school, the honor of being accepted at Bryn Mawr, it was all overwhelming. So I went home, and I said, I don't have a typewriter at home. I'm like, you want it tomorrow morning? She said, fine, bring it in handwritten. Well, I was up till 2 o'clock in the morning writing my essay for the application, took it back the next morning. She read it and said, okay, you're in. And I did it in two years, simply because I placed out of many of the courses that I was teaching. Mm -hmm. And I took child development and education in the Department of Psychology and finally graduated and his swirling kept his promise. Mm-hmm. He sent me to England to work with Anna Freud for a month, which mm-hmm. was incredible. Wow. What was it like working with her and meeting her? She was an amazing woman. She was then 83 years old. And my husband and I, he went with me. He took time off. He was in a group practice mm-hmm. and was able to take the time to be with me. And we took a trial ride the night day before to see how he could drive over to Hampstead, which mm-hmm. is outside of London. Mm-hmm. And I, As we're going near the Hampstead Clinic, where she was located, we see this huge car pulling up and this little, little lady behind the wheel. She gets out very short, very petite, gray hair, and that turned out to be Anna Freud. Working with her was another whole amazing experience. She was on top of everything. She had held meetings with the staff. She appointed me the art lady. 
<laughs> and I was free to work with all of the children when they didn't have a scheduled program. It was a Montessori program, which is rather scheduled. You know, everything needs to be mm-hmm. a teaching experience. Mm-hmm. But I had uh, the freedom to uh, do drawings with the children uh, in between all of these different things and sit in on all of the activities, sit in on the staff meetings. There were several conferences, uh, one a week for the month, and she sat there and would look like she was asleep. And somebody would say something, she'd open her eyes and say, that's incorrect. (laughs) Oh, yes, I agree with that. (laughs) Go back to sleep. (laughs) I have sketches that were published of everybody, her, the children, some of her staff, Hmm. that someone then later wrote an article on our therapists who had gone abroad and asked me if she could have my sketches from my sketchbook. I said, sure. But she was just tremendous. She was extremely supportive. She was interested in everything I did. I had discovered one child was learning disabled where they thought he was a very severe behavior problem. She had very few children with issues. Her clinic was primarily for, quotes normal children because she was really still studying child development. But this one youngster, a precious little boy of six, just carried on terribly. And I noticed that he was looking at the cover of a puzzle and figuring out where to put the piece in the puzzle as he was working on it. And I thought, my goodness, this child looks like he's learning disabled, and he's trying to work it out. And I asked the psychologist there if he could do a test on it and told him what I thought, and he said he couldn't test for that. So Miss Freud came in, and she said she wanted me to do my evaluation and see what I came up with. And my evaluation proved that he was learning disabled. He couldn't connect circles. He couldn't connect squares. He was really having a perceptual problem. Mm -hmm. And both she and the psychologist were just tremendous. That case has been reported in the dissertation that went to a publisher 10 days later. But it was an amazing experience, just tremendous. I'd like to shift gears if we can. Sure. I was so sorry to read that your husband died suddenly. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that time and what your thoughts were about maybe moving or not, because you did move eventually into the independent living community. But I was wondering how long you stayed in the house you were in after your husband died. Uh, Len and I were, he was approaching 90, mm-hmm. I was I was 87, and almost 87, and he died actually on my the week of my birthday. He was fine, mm-hmm. beginning to get a little frail, mm-hmm. and uh, we had downsized into an apartment because two of our daughters had retired to Florida, not too far away from us, and um, we were fine. We played bridge, we went out socially, he was incredible. He shopped with me. He helped me with laundry. He did everything. He really missed medicine terribly, but in the group he'd been in, he'd had to retire at 62, and I retired with him. He, one night, said he was very tired and didn't feel well, and his pulse was dropping. And at first, he said he would not call 911. He'd go to sleep. He said, and I should stay nearby. And uh, he said he was sure it would stop. Well, it didn't. In an hour... It was lower, and he said, okay, call 911. Mm-hmm. I did. took four days, and he had one coronary after another while they were putting in pacemakers, and he passed away. It was, I was devastated. And, of mm-hmm. course, my very lovely children, who wrote the forward, one of the forewords for the book, mm-hmm. and my profile, mm-hmm. all said, Mom, come live with us. 
and my son-in-laws and I had a wonderful relationship, and I figured that's what they don't need and I don't need. Uh Living with them is not a good idea, and my mother had taught me that many years before. She came here, lived close by, but would not live with us, and I thought she was right. They had their own lives, and so my children didn't want a memorial. They wanted a celebration of Len's life. And we had that on his birthday, which was November. After his death, he would have been 90. And uh, then I said, I'm looking for an independent living place. Mm -hmm. And I had suggested that to Len the year before, but he had said, no, he just wanted to stay home with me and didn't want us to move to an independent living place. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And so I thought about it and decided that that's what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. So he died in August. In October, one of my daughters went with me, and after looking at eight places, I found the place I'm living in, which is also an interesting story why, and I put it in the book. Uh, This was the only place that asked me what I was looking for, not what they had to show me. And we were so impressed. Yes, it it was amazing. Bonnie and I looked at each other. It was like, wow, how about that? And I moved in after the celebration of his life, mid-November. Of 2011? Yes, yes. Did you say your daughters or one of them went with you looking for... Yes, my oldest daughter, Bonnie, Bonnie. went around with me and we looked at eight places. And finally we came to this and I was so depressed. It wasn't a matter of space or the apartment. It was a matter of laundry facilities. Most of them did not have uh, laundry facilities in the apartments. They expect you to walk down the hallway and I'm thinking I was walking with a cane then and uh, because I had broken a hip several years before. And the first time in years that I was so immobilized to me, we didn't like the food because everybody invited you to lunch, of course. Didn't like certain accommodations. But we came here. This was the last place we came to. And I must tell you, my daughter went to the bathroom, came out, thumbs up, the bathroom was clean. (laughs) Then we go in with the marketing person, and we sit down, and the very first thing she said to me, Jana, was, okay, Tell me what you're looking for. And I thought, oh, my God. Because the first thing everybody else said, well, you know, we have a gorgeous auditorium, or we have this, or we have that, and the food is superb, and on and on and on. And I, it was just selling so amazing, this response, hmm. that we said, okay, don't tell us your auditorium. Don't show us your facility. And that's how I moved in. Uh-huh. Your experience is very different from Max's. Can you tell us why you decided to write this book and tell us a little bit about its genesis? Sure. I was here two years and i given up driving and I realized that this is not independent living, that there really is no such thing. It's a fantasy. Now, Max and I have been friends for many years. She, too, was the director of a program that followed mine several years. It was started, actually, by a very close friend. And when my friend retired before I did, uh, Max and I uh, became very, very good friends and connected. And she called to see how I was doing, which was not unusual. We, we spoke to each other occasionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you know, Max, there's no such thing as independent living. I'm really thinking... Maybe I should write a book. And it's funny, my daughters thought it was a great idea. And in fact, they wanted to make the title What? Because they said everybody's hard of hearing here, which is true. <laughs> and I, when I told Max this, she, she laughed and she said, how about we write it together? And it was truly her idea. Mm-hmm. So we started writing back and forth to talk about how we would write the book. And it occurred to her, and again, it is to her credit, that it became an epistolary, which is letters instead of chapters. 
and uh, we just decided that that's what we would do. And each of our letters simulated the other to answer something, to describe something. Her community, my community, people we knew, were we happy, were they happy? And one of the things I've, I've said over and over, for me, there's been no such thing as happy. I'm very content. I'm protected. I'm not a burden to my children. They know I'm safe. They know they will be called if anything happens to me. And it was a good decision for me. And that's how I came to live here. And what sort of research did you uncover before writing this book? We both had read the book, Being Mortal, by Atal Gawande. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely, lovely book. He is a neurosurgeon, and he wrote the book from a medical perspective, talking about the fact that nobody treats people this old, this generation, with understanding or dignity. I found that, too, when I had a little melanoma, and the nurse begins to tell my daughter what's going to be done, and I said, I have the melanoma. Uh She doesn't. Tell me what's going to be done. Uh I mean, it's just incredible. Uh Uh, It's as if we are children, and our children are our parents. And so we began to research the literature for people living in independent communities, which had become a big business. We found nothing. There is just recently a book, very funny jokes about old people. There was a little article by uh, a young woman who is an author about her grandmother moving into an independent living and how she was treated poorly by some of the women. In fact, I quote her in the book. Her grandmother didn't get find anybody to play cards with. They didn't want to sit with her at dinner. And this young woman, the granddaughter, wrote, you know, mean children grow into mean old ladies, and there are cliques, Mm -hmm. and there are all sorts of things that that can be distressing. And so Max and I decided, well, there's nothing around except Dr. Gawande's book. We're going to write about it. And what we'll do is we'll compare our environments, she living in a very independent situation and I in supposedly independent but far from it. Mm -hmm. I'm dependent on transportation, food, etc., and so on. Right, and Max has stopped driving, but she is still very active with her painting. What sort of projects are you involved with? One of the most fortunate things when I came here was this beautiful arts and crafts room. When they heard that I was a painter, the activities director offered me a closet in the art room to store all my paints and supplies and told me that I could come into the art room and paint on weekends. I would have it free, and it was just wonderful. And I'm still doing that, except they're renovating, so I've been not doing so much down there. But I painted all these years. I've exhibited. I'm a member of the National League of American Pen Women. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. Okay, National League of American Pen Women was started somewhere around the 1890s, And they started it actually as a writer's club, women writer's club, because they were so angry with the men who wouldn't let them into their meetings and so on, Mm -hmm. and gradually began to include artists and musicians. Mm -hmm. And you have to be sponsored, you have to be an exhibiting artist, a published musician, a published writer. But I had written many articles by that time, and I had written the first book, of course, uh, at that point. And so I was invited into the organization as a dual member, a writer and artist. Mm-hmm. So I exhibited there. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I exhibited here, and then I contributed to the resident council, being someone who has a big mouth and can't tolerate some of the things that are going on. I was appalled when I found there were no bylaws. So I and two women sat down and rewrote the bylaws. I was elected to the council. Uh-huh and served as a uh, president and secretary. This is for the living facility? Absolutely. All living facilities have a residence council. Most of them do. Okay. And they are very specific. Mm -hmm. And uh, the assistant director got me copies of bylaws from other communities. Mm -hmm. And so we sat down and rewrote the bylaws. Then we have a holiday fund here started in October, and it is a holiday fund for our part-time employees who have no benefits, and so it's just a tradition in all of these communities, and and that's another whole story, uh, that they hire many part-time people to avoid paying benefits and health care. So there is a bonus at the end from the holiday funds, and I'm still working on that every year. It was my job originally, and then I continued to volunteer to work on that. And then we had here, which I don't think many other places have, a wonderful journal of resident articles and the woman that had started it had been an editor for her husband and her father who were professors and had started the journal oh I guess now it's about 13 14 years ago and I had contributed articles to it and um, she passed away suddenly and I offered to start the journal since I had been an editor on international journals and art therapy and our activity director at the time said that she was going to do it. Well, it sat on her desk for a year, and then she put up a little notice. Well, someone volunteered, and I said, Nuvia, I volunteered before. I'll do it, uh-huh. and invited two other women to co-edit with me. And we've done it now for a year and a half, and it is wonderful. But what I did was I included staff. I made it a resident and staff journal. And I also, uh, well, the lady who had started it, she called it the round table, which I thought was very great. And she had a picture of the round table. She also often had Thanksgiving, a picture of a turkey. She had different graphics. I decided that since I paint, there were other artists here that I knew of, I invite an artist for each issue for a year to give us a painting to put on the cover. And so the journal has really become very successful. People have been coming up to us and telling us how much they appreciated it and liked it. And I've had some staff contribute. They're really either shy or lazy Uh or unwilling, but they think it's a great idea as long as they're not writing. (laughs) How many residents are there? Over 200, it depends, but it's usually over 200. Okay, so... We also have an assisted living here. Oh, I see. Is the 200 or so included in the... I would say it's closer to 250, yes. That includes the assisted living members. Yes, yes. Okay, so I thought it was really interesting that in the excerpt I read online that you wrote this generation of oldies. You wrote, unless... They were that non-conforming woman who worked or that unusual man who pursued intellectual interests outside of making a living. They just want to be entertained. Is that generational? Because I have a feeling that baby boomers might not want to just be entertained. There's a little segment in my book, a vignette which I shared, Mm -hmm. and which one of the women here who was 100, and she uh, was very, very sharp. She thought all of the women here 
were has-beens. And I said I didn't quite agree with her. I said I think there were many who were wannabes, and she was a perfect example. My generation, Jana, did not go to work. My generation played cards. Their identity was what their husband did. I'm Mrs. So-and-so, and my husband is CEO, doctor, whatever. And coming here, there were very few women that had ever worked or done anything else, played cards, volunteers, and many of them were really very, very sure, are very sure, and have contributed tremendously to organizations for cancer, for child welfare, and so on. But as far as going out to work, making a position for themselves, it was foreign and it wasn't acceptable. So now they are retired, they're in their late 80s and 90s, and they want to rest. And they want activities that either stimulate them intellectually uh, a little bit, or they want to be entertained. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of entertainment. And we have things like water aerobics, and and we have some excellent lectures. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked me recently why I don't attend a particular lecture on history. And I said, to tell you the truth, I'm so tired going to so many schools and listening to lectures, I don't want to. I said, I'd rather paint or read or do something else. So you have to explain yourself. Because if you're not part of the group, I play bridge, by the way, and that's the only game I play. I play twice a week in the afternoon, and uh, that's my major entertainment. And it probably has helped me a lot, too, in keeping my head moving and my brain going. And making friends. I wonder if you could talk about making friends at this stage of your life. There's two interesting sides to that, if you'll permit me. Mm-hmm. One is many, uh, a number of our friends had died by the time Len died. And, of course, we were always involved with the widow or the widower and really felt that, you know, we should keep in touch. But when I moved here... It took about two years, and I realized that many of my friends, whether or not they still had their spouses, didn't want to bother coming over here. In fact, one of my daughters even said she sometimes doesn't like seeing me with so many old people, which is pretty funny. But many of my friends stopped calling or died that I knew before. So I really had to make friends here, and I made a few friends who died. It was horrible. And I realized that that's one of the things that's like a residential hazard, and I wrote about that in the book. The losses are tremendous. Mm-hmm. And Max asked me how we dealt with it and what we did, and, and I went through that. There is a lovely ritual. When someone dies, they put up a vase with flowers and their picture, and you know you've lost another person here. I finally, I would say about two years ago, maybe three years ago, two new women both very bright, had been married, their husbands were successful. They did not identify themselves as wife of so-and-so, but really were very much involved in charity work and other things. Mm -hmm. And we all sat together Mm -hmm. with one of my friends that I had made that passed away, an English teacher, who was the only gay woman here and felt very comfortable with me. Mm -hmm. And I just enjoyed her. She was bright. She was much fun. And so there were four of us. And then Carol died. Mm-hmm. And the other person that I had been close to had died before. She had been a school counselor, and we had much in common, rare one. Mm-hmm. 
And Carol, of course, was certainly the only exceptional person here at that time in her lifestyle and what she had fought for and how she had lived her life. Mm -hmm. It was tremendous. And then a couple of new people came in and they asked to sit with us. We now have a table of six. There are six of us. And we are all widows. Five of them are from New York. I am the only Philadelphian, but they accept me. (laughs) And let me talk about Philadelphia once in a while. But uh, I play bridge with one of them, and I share a great deal intellectually with the others. One is beginning to have dementia, and so we're all very supportive of her. It happens to be my neighbor. And this is my friend. This is really my surrogate family at this point. Uh huh. How often do you see your daughters? They take me off campus every week. One daughter invites me to dinner on Sunday nights when she's here. She is the grandmother of my five great-grandchildren, so she often goes back and forth to Philadelphia. When she's here, I have dinner with her and my son-in-law every Sunday night. My other daughter takes me out to dinner or to lunch on the weekend. In fact, she just called last night. She said, shall we do Sunday night? I said, fine. They feel it's important to take me off the campus. They did come occasionally for dinner or for lunch, but they said it's more important for me to get out. And I think they're right. Uh They're very, very supportive. They think it's interesting, I guess is the word. I don't even know how to describe it, but they're (laughs) even a little amazed that I keep doing all the things I do. And I say, even though I'm on a walker, I mean, if I don't keep doing them, I think and I'm only. I will never get over missing my husband. I was married for 68 years. We had a tremendous relationship. It was just so loving, and he was so caring. Incidentally, my mother moved down here 15 years before she died because we insisted she wouldn't live with us. There really were no independent living communities. There were a few places, and she insisted on looking for them and moving into them. And I took her out to lunch every week. We'd go out and we'd have lunch. Sometimes my husband would join us, sometimes he wouldn't. And then very often if their children were visiting at that time, and I would make sure she was with us when they visited. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a very tight family. Yes, yes. I must tell you, I last December, I even flew to Philadelphia, and I go up whenever there's something special, which some of my friends can't get over. They feel they can't travel anymore. And I was up for my oldest great-grandson's bar mitzvah, and that was very exciting. How many of your daughters live nearby? Two. Two live nearby. One is in Boca. The other one is in Boynton, which is about a half hour away. My youngest daughter, incidentally, they're all within three years of age because we waited, and then I had to do it fast. Uh Um, (laughs) My youngest daughter is an internationally known lawyer. She started the first juvenile law center in Philadelphia 47 years ago, I think. Hmm. And um, she has been honored for changing major laws, like we were the only country in the world that executed teenagers under 18 years of age. Hmm. She went to federal Supreme Court. She had that law changed, changed the law that teenagers can no longer be treated as adults, and uh, they can no longer be given life without parole. Suddenly two years ago, there were some 3,000 men all over the United States that were in jail 
for life without parole, sentenced when they were teenagers, and they've all now been given the opportunity to apply for parole. Not all of them, of course, will get it. I mean, that depends on how they've been and so on. But the fact is that they now have the right to do that. And she's been honored. She goes to Japan. She goes everywhere. She's invited to speak. You must be very proud of her. I'm proud of all of my daughters. My oldest daughter is a psychologist, worked with learning disabled children before Mm -hmm. she returned. Well, she retired before that because she wanted to be home with her children. Mm -hmm. And my middle daughter is an art therapist, Mm -hmm. and she worked for 20 years and then retired here with her husband. They're all amazing. And the one who's the attorney, what is her name? Marsha Levick. She still uses our last name. Uh, She's married, has two daughters. She Mm -hmm. told my husband that since we had no sons that she would carry on the name. Her daughter, when she was seven years old, told me I have to do something about the fact that her mother doesn't have her name. So I explained to her, well, maybe sometimes she would like to keep her own name, but she knows she's Beauchamp, uh-huh. and it's okay. Uh-huh. So she has long since accepted it. Uh-huh. What are some of the assumptions and myths about post-75-year-olds that are often held as truths? Uh, well, the assumptions are that they're no longer working, if they ever did work that uh, they need to be uh, assisted, that they don't think the way they thought before. Mm -hmm. And not so much, those assumptions are devastating because, as Gawande pointed out, when he operated on someone or saw someone for surgery or aftercare, the family always came along and spoke for that person. And it's just incredible. The assumption is that they can't think for themselves, that they need assistance wherever they go. And that's the worst assumption of all. Mm. Myra, what's your view of how younger people view aging? And what are people surprised to learn about you? I'm just wondering, generally speaking, what your experience of interacting with younger people is. Well, it's been rather amazing with the book. There are younger people that are reading it and calling me and Max inspirations, which is pretty wild. I mean, I'm thinking suddenly at 90-something, I became an inspiration. But they are amazed And they talk about it, well, if you can do it, why can't we do it? Mm -hmm. And the whole point is, yes, you can and you should. It's no secret. We simply keep active. We make sure we're involved. And I have one young woman here who is, coincidentally, the daughter of someone who lives in assisted living. And I met her years ago. Since I've written the book, she has been inviting me to speak to elder care groups. She is just so excited about the book. She has arranged for me to speak to the Elder Care Association here. I am still in touch with, believe it or not, with the first assistant I had back in 1967 at Hahnemann. And she's now reading the book, and she's talking to me, writing back and forth to me with emails. And she's just automatically does the things that I did. She said, that's what we have to do. Just keep busy and be involved as much as we can and as physically able as we are. Unfortunately, some people are physically disabled and can't help it. Mm -hmm. What do you want people to take away from this book? I want people to take away the fact that this generation is not done. We still have things to contribute. We still can make connections. And we're really very vital if we have been blessed with physical abilities. Fortunately, I don't have dementia, but it's interesting. I think that things happen to me uh, automatically. I drank lots of coffee, and now caffeine is supposed to be terrific for the brain. 
Painting is certainly extremely valuable. I do have severe arthritis and use a walker, but that doesn't keep me from standing and dancing to the music, holding on to my walker at my grandson's bar mitzvah. That's what I want them to take away. Don't stop. If you can, whatever you can, do it. That's great advice. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add? Well, I just want to say that, number one, when you lose someone that's very special, there is no replacing people. There is learning to live with loss and with change. And Max and I talked about the fact that there's so many challenges in this age, and she felt the challenges was a poor word for it, but maybe not. Uh, I think that people have responded to me that they see the challenges coming, and you have to accept those challenges. And instead of crumbling under them and sitting in your room and lamenting what you're getting old, get out and move and do something. And that doesn't mean you're going to be deliriously happy ever again, but you're going to be content. You're going to be involved and you're going to be connected. It's been my advice to myself, and it certainly has worked for me. What are you going to do now for the rest of the day? Well, believe it or not, you're going to laugh at this, I'm sure, and be amazed. Uh, Many years ago, the only thing I ever treated myself to in the beauty parlor was my nails. Having my nails done because I painted and they usually looked like hell. So when I moved here, I told my manicurist to some 15 years that I stopped driving when I could no longer come. And she said, don't worry, I'll come to you. And so today is the day she comes, and I have arranged over the years I've been here to have other people come, so it makes her day very worthwhile. And so this afternoon, I will be having my nails done, which she comes every three weeks. You gave her an incentive by offering more clients. Right. <laughs> yes. We've been speaking with Dr. Myra Levick, half of the writing team of the book Dear Myra, Dear Max, a conversation about aging, which you can learn more about by visiting the AgeWise website, where we'll post lots of information about the authors and their work. Myra, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed chatting with you. You're a true inspiration. I appreciated your comments, and I certainly love talking to you. Thank you, Jenna. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, laugh, cry, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.